Welcome to episode number 217 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman, industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. These episodes bring the most insightful, experienced people in the world to have conversations about the impact of technology on our society, on culture, on business organizations. And today we are doing a special show with the focus on Salesforce.com. And we have three truly extraordinary industry analysts who have been covering Salesforce practically from the beginning, in some cases, uh, maybe from before the beginning, in fact. And uh, <laughs> we have, I'm going to start with uh, Liz Herbert, who is from Forrester Research. Uh, hey, Liz, how you doing? Hi, I'm good. I'm glad to be here today. So, Liz, very briefly, what do you cover at Forrester? So, I'm on Forrester's applications team, and uh, the two key areas that I focus on here for Forrester are software as a service and services uh, that surround ecosystems like the one that Salesforce has built up at this point. So, those are the two main things. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know Forrester, we work a lot with end user clients as well as with the vendor community. So, hopefully, I'll be able to share with you perspectives from sort of a wide range that we've been tracking here. Fantastic. You know, and I forgot to mention that right now there is a tweet chat going on using the hashtag CXOTalk. So please participate and you can ask questions and we'll try to get those answered. And I also want to mention that I have a huge thank you to Livestream, which provides our video infrastructure, our video distribution. And so Livestream, thank you very much. They are, they are just a fantastically great company and and I'm very grateful to their support of CXO Talk. Our second panelist is Paul Greenberg. And uh, Paul, tell us about yourself and tell us where your focus is. Well, uh, I'm the managing principal of the 56 Group LLC, which is actually 55 more uh, numbers than number of employees I have. Uh, then I'm the author of CRM at Speed of Light, and I'm covering, I started out in CRM, but I've expanded my coverage to customer engagement, customer experience, pretty much anything with the word customer in front of it or customer-facing department. And I, and I will mention that Paul is very modest, and his influence and his impact on CRM and uh, customer experience on our marketing, our industry is is very, very large and very significant, and he's just so well-respected. And our next respected analyst and panel member is Cheryl Kingstone from the 451 Group. Hey, Cheryl. Thank you for being Hi. here. Hey, thanks, Michael, for inviting me. And I am the research director at 451 Research, and my channel or area of expertise is customer experience in commerce. So I cover that area along with my team, and it, it looks at everything from the CX stack, including ad tech to martech to service to commerce. So it's nice to see some of the changes there, along with all the different deployment strategies and the infrastructure that goes along with it. And we do look at it from an end user point of view, and then we also work with a lot of the vendors. So we have, so we have an amazing panel today. I think we should begin by placing Salesforce into context. Maybe 
uh, discussing briefly the history of Salesforce. It's It's got uh, a run rate of roughly $10 billion, and they've announced revenue guidance for 2018 of $10 billion. So it's a large company and a growing SaaS company. And Cheryl, maybe you can begin and tell us why, why do we care about why do we care about Salesforce? We care about Salesforce because they're a disruptive force in the industry. They really were the pioneer of a new deployment strategy, a new way of delivering software. And they came at it in 1999. And every one of us, I know myself and Liz and Paul, have really followed Salesforce from the beginning, where they started out in really very focused around sales and quickly grew to the entire CX stack. But what's really interesting is what they bring to the table is more than an application. It really is a platform of engagement. And that's what's changed. They shift the market around CRM to be less around a transactional system of record and much more around a systems of engagement that combines both aspects of what we need to do today to deliver on effective customer experiences. You know, uh, to add to what Cheryl's saying, the, the thing with Salesforce, which has always been incredible, they didn't invent the cloud. The, the cloud was there before they were, right? But what they did do, which goes to Cheryl's point on delivery, is they popularized it. They made it actually something that everybody started to use because, and that's what their initial disruption was from. Now, since roughly, actually since 2003, uh, they've been a platform-focused company, even though their revenue comes mostly from sales cloud and service cloud and the like. But I had a conversation with Team Sue, who was at the time the chief marketing officer of Salesforce back in 2003. And he told me that, I asked him, like, what's your future going to be? Because, you know, they were, they'd, I think they'd just gotten the CRM designation on the stock exchange. So you'd figure CRM, but he said, well... CRM is just a means to an end for us. He said, what we're really looking at is being, I forget the exact way he worded it, but something along these lines. The, 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 uh, the, the, this, the web service that all application, business applications are run on. And they've never, ever taken their eyes off that idea, not for all the years from then on, never. They really haven't, Paul. And one of the things I do want to point out is even before they got the CRM acronym, when he was creating the market in 2000, 2001, doing roadshows, being frustrated in the back of the room that he named the customer Salesforce, and that really wasn't his goal. He didn't want to do that, but Salavi, it what it was, and he couldn't even get 40 people in the room for a roadshow. And now when you look at what Dreamforce is at what, 150, 180,000, he has to bring in a cruise ship. That's dramatic results. So Liz, uh, so what has caused this dramatic result, as Cheryl just said? Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that Cheryl and Paul have been saying. You know, one of the things we've seen is that, you know, as Paul mentioned and Cheryl as well, with Salesforce really pioneering the move into cloud computing for the enterprise in particular, clients that we're speaking with, they've gotten much more comfortable with the whole idea of cloud computing. In fact, a lot of the concerns that we used to see in the past, like security, like performance, like integration, customization, those are today perceived as advantages. Clients I talk to today, they now think 
we'll get better security if we go to the cloud because Salesforce can invest many times more than we ever could. Um, actually, the idea of a new kind of customization that's faster and that's maybe perhaps more vanilla is a better thing. It gets us out of that cycle of technical debt that we've all been dealing with. And so, you know, if I look at what we're seeing today in terms of what our clients are thinking, not only are they viewing it as able to go head to head with any large enterprise technology, they trust it to run mission critical parts of their business. Um, and then lastly, I would echo something that Cheryl started talking about, which is clients are viewing Salesforce as the way they can transform business. One of the most interesting changes we've seen over the past couple of years is that companies are even looking beyond Salesforce as a platform or a suite of applications, and they're looking to it as an enabler of new business models. Um, we saw this, for example, with the GM General Motors example that got announced at Dreamforce a couple of years ago, where, you know, GM is like other automotive companies looking to become more of a connected car company. They're looking to grow new revenue streams. Um, and Salesforce is actually an integral part of one of those new revenue streams, which is a way that they serve up marketing um, in the car when someone's driving by restaurants, coffee shops, et cetera, that they're interested in. And so, you know, to me, that that really is what has gotten people so excited about Salesforce, the company, um, and also is, is showing really where this next generation of cloud is going. You, you know, and that actually goes to the heart of a couple of things that Salesforce does that, well, one thing they do better than anyone else, and one thing that they do no one else does. The thing they do better than anyone else is they actually are capable of executing on the idea of vision. And what <laughs> that means something, well, you know, here's the thing. You know, vision has two parts, right? Part one is an idea of how things are going to look. And, but that, if you don't have part two, that's just science fiction, right? Part two is the person hearing it is thinking, oh, you know what? I see myself as part of that. That's what Mark Benioff's talent is. He actually can sell a vision, not just to customers and prospects, but to his own employees. So typical of most tech companies, you know, when Salesforce makes product announcements, they don't have them yet. But, you know, they have about, let's call it 60% of the product. That's just a number. I'm making that up, so I don't know if that's the real number. But uh, but the thing is, they tend to actually get the rest of that much quicker than most other companies because the employees buy into it, right? And the employees then put their time and effort. So that's the thing they do better. They have a real vision that gets presented in a way that the people get engaged with. The well, one more thing. The second piece is Ignite, right? They, they have a program called Ignite. And Ignite is a program that is is—it's not really, oddly, it's vendor agnostic in terms of the way I approach it. And what it is is basically a way of actually, as a trusted advisor, Salesforce uh, employee and staff will go in with their prospects and companies uh, or customers and say, hi, let's discuss business transformation. Let's figure out how to do it. Let's be innovative. Let's work this through. And they're not saying let's use Salesforce. They're just saying let's fight and come up with ideas and, and they leave them both with a framework of methodology and new business models to Liz's point. I'd also, say, I'd also say one other thing uh, that they do better than any other company that I've seen is get clients excited about the product in a way that they're willing to go on record and share their stories. One of the things that's very notable about Salesforce is when they do paint this vision, and exactly as you said, Paul, they're great about following through, then they get the customers up on stage, whether that's literally up on stage at Dreamforce, which Cheryl mentioned is you know just become a humongous tech industry event, really 
entertainment industry event too at this point. Um, and on top of that, you know, if you look at YouTube or any other just public channel, they go farther than any company I've ever seen in terms of that transparency and the depth into which you can find real customers talking about real stories that that do. They take that from vision to reality, exactly as you said, Paul. But there. The other thing to add with that, though, one other point on the customers is I don't want to make this that they're doing absolutely everything perfectly because everyone makes mistakes. There's still lessons to be learned. There's still problems with the user interface with some you know ways of looking at it. But the point being is the customers are willing to be upfront with what was working and what was not working. They don't, they have a sense of transparency that no other software company really delivers on today. Um, and that's something that the whole industry has to learn on because the world has shifted to true transparency. Yeah. We have reviews out there. We need metrics and we need maturity models. And that is something that Salesforce has always been very upfront with. And they've even stated themselves, look, we fell behind in XYZ. We're now working on it. Or this is where we're going to go on our roadmap. And so that sense of transparency adds trust to their customers and the customers feel confident in saying, this is how we're going to use the next generation of the platform. You know, actually, to Cheryl's point, I actually remember the story. It was about three or four years ago. I went to the D.C. version of Dreamforce. They do these road shows everywhere. And this one, oddly enough, this is just D.C. They had 14,000 people, right? Uh, and Mark... Benioff, the CEO, stood up and said, look, uh, audience, I want to test our messaging that we're going to potentially use a dream force with you. And he pushed the social enterprise, which turned into an utter failure, of course. But 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 he actually tested it and said that's what he was doing with the audience and then was soliciting feedback. I'd never in my life heard that from any, let's say, leader of a company speaking on a stage their messaging is crafted and focused, and typically they don't let you know that from their standpoint, it isn't the absolute truth about everything. This guy was saying, look, this is a test. I don't know if it works or not. Why don't you tell me? Yes, but, but Paul, but, but Paul, one thing about this. I mean, clearly, Salesforce uh, marketing is in, incredible and their vision as well. But... But they have taken stabs at things like the, that whole social enterprise, and they presented it as the way of the world. Yes, oh, well, as, that, as, well, as they were developing the message, yes. But at the same time, at Dreamforce, you know, it's the way of the world. But you, look, the answer is yes, they do that. But so does every company that you ever go to of any conference that we all of us combined have probably been to what? Four million and two hundred thousand conferences somewhere in that vicinity. I'm not far off from the truth either. Um, so every single one of the companies does exactly that. Look, the Salesforce Salesforce has. It's funny you bring that up because that that goes to a different part of Salesforce, but it's not just the marketing part. You know, marketing says we are the ones. You know, look, I have a standing mantra on the we are the only ones. And, I, and my mantra is very simple. It's, I, it follows, look, if you're not telling me that you just invented a new element for the periodic table, you're not the only one, right? So, you know, don't even say it, right? But they all say it. The thing with Salesforce, though, is they have this extraordinary culture, and it really is an actually genuinely extraordinary culture. I know a lot of just lower-level employees at the company, several of them are literally the children of people I've known for 40 years, right? And they love the company. 
absolutely love it. The benefits, everything about it, the workplace and environment. You take that culture, which is one of, you know, and, and also the fact they take political stance, they're diverse, you know, or they attempt to be diverse, I should say. They're, you know, they're doing all the things that, let's say, younger generation and everyone should be concerned with, but at least the younger generation are concerned with in the workplace. They're doing that. In the meantime, they're the most explosive, dynamic com company in the technology world. But what happens is when that happens, you find people in the company who become arrogant and very arrogant, in fact. I mean, you know, I, I fired shots across their bow for that reason a few times. And why? Because the people misread what the culture is. Now, the culture doesn't support or enable that in any way. They can actually disable it and discourage it. Their culture is really good. But those kind of definitive, we are the only ones or we're it, and the individuals are coming, those are, let's call it outlier results of things. On the one hand, the individuals doing it are outliers. On the other hand, the messaging of we are the only is a message. And, it, and they're, they're going to always do that. Every company does. Salesforce, it just seems more definitive because they are the most dynamic of the company. So what are then some of the challenges? Because, I mean, we've had this real love fest. Uh, are there any challenges facing Salesforce or is everything perfect? I mean, I'll, I'll start with a couple. I know we've all got some ideas on this. Um, you know, one of the biggest challenges that we're seeing is the threat from new competition. You know, when Salesforce first started, you know, emerging onto the enterprise application scene, uh, you know, re really from Forrester's standpoint, we didn't start seriously tracking them until around 2004, even 2005. And even at that time, most people were skeptical that the whole software as a service model could really materialize into something for large scale mission critical types of applications the way that it has today. And you saw that same behavior with the leading vendors. Uh, most vendors were still very negative on the whole idea of software as a service. Um, other large ISVs had attempts at as a service, but it was never really front and center with their strategy. Um, and if you look at the competitive landscape for Salesforce today, it's exactly the opposite, right? Everybody's talking cloud. Everybody wants to be the leader of the cloud world. Um, and to me, only in the last year or two have we even seen real viable threats to Salesforce. Um, and to me, that's one of their biggest threats is that they, you know, they used to be in a very unique position uh, to be able to go out there and win these deals. Nowadays, they've got much steeper competition coming from really everywhere. Um, and then on, on top of that, what you see is like anybody, um, as you start to grow, your culture does start to change. And one of the things we've identified with clients we're working with is that Salesforce is behaving a lot more like the traditional large ISV behavior. They're a lot more difficult to deal with. Um, they're, they're actually getting a little bit more aggressive on discounting and cost and some of the traditional factors that our clients always complained about with any other large on-premises ISV. And so to me, that uh, sort of, I wouldn't want to say it's overly negative, but there is this growing negative sentiment in their customer base because of some of that behavior combined with threat of new competition. Um, to me, this is going to be one of the biggest challenges for them in, in the ne next few years. I would I agree with everything Liz just said. And so they do have challenges with respect to competition. I would say looking at some of the issues that they are and the struggles that they're having today has to do with transitioning to more improving that UI. So they were cutting edge at first and now companies are still if you look at enterprises they're still struggling with the best way to maximize the information in it. 
we're still struggling with that 360 degree view of the customer across all the different clouds. We're still struggling with the ability to really maximize the return on investment because when we, in, in the early 2000s, we did make the case for premise based versus SaaS. But we were targeting, actually, even though they thought it was a low-end type of solution, the way we made the case was targeting Siebel because Siebel was multi-million dollar deployments. It was a no-brainer. Now we have a different environment. And so now we have to understand issues around pricing, whether the pricing models are changing, what are we doing with best practices of getting quick information in and out of these systems, again, it really comes down to ease of deployment, ease of use, which sometimes is out of the hands of Salesforce. It's what do you do with the software itself? And that was a problem that Siebel had. And so when you gear more towards a platform play, you're also enabling the enterprises themselves to make mistakes and implement something that's actually not usable within an organization. And that's really... That's what they're trying to do with Ignite. But the other thing with Ignite is it's very high level. It's business transformation where you also need to pay attention to grassroots deployments. How is every user within the organization leveraging that platform for their use? How easy is it to get in? How easy is it to find the information? And how easy is it to collaborate on that information? And that's something that's going to be a stumbling block still. Well, clearly, as Salesforce has grown, it is no longer just about the technology, but rather, how does that technology have an impact inside the the business impact inside the customer organization? And as you said, the role of one of the key roles of that Ignite program is to ensure is is to support the transformation of customers. Now. The, the, we have a couple of questions from Twitter, and so let's let's go to them. So, Liz, this is really for you from the B two B News Network, and you mentioned uh, Liz earlier that customers are looking at Salesforce as a uh, platform enabler for new revenue streams, and the B two B News Network is wondering: Can you uh, give us some examples, or anybody give some examples of that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I gave the one of General Motors. They were one that was talked about publicly. Um, so I know they're one that we are allowed to say. Um, so just to, to recap, that example is, you know, GM, as part of its connected car, recognizes there's many ways they can create additional revenues beyond, you know, the early use case of OnStar, which was more of a health and safety type of solution back in the 90s, actually, when GM launched OnStar. Um, And they realized that marketing and collecting advertising revenues as a driver is going along their way and maybe gets an ad for a local Starbucks, something like that, um, would be a new revenue stream for GM and and really opens them up into a new kind of an engagement with their customers um, that perhaps hadn't really been there before. So uh, this is an example where they realized the technology that had made OnStar very successful, actually kind of a pioneering kind of technology in the 90s, uh, was too brittle and it wasn't going to be able to sustain this new revenue stream. So Salesforce is part of that modern OnStar platform, um, and it does represent some new uh, revenue streams for them. Um, I I would say this, uh, a lot of clients that I'm talking with are looking at it. I know in some of the Salesforce events, they've also talked about a lot of companies who, even beyond that Ignite program, they're looking to know 
because every company is now kind of being a SaaS company. That's something that we've been doing a lot of research around is how, whether you're financial services or manufacturing or healthcare, um, a lot of what you're doing now is acting as a SaaS company and more and more Salesforce wants to be part of that. Um, it's, it's hard to say too many more examples though, because I have to check which ones are public and which ones we've known through our NDAs. So I, I'll probably hold off with just that GM example right now. Well, I mean, another one, which is, it's a little bit nebulous, but it actually goes to a problem Salesforce has more than this company, but Philips Health Tech is another one. Philips Health Tech is one of Salesforce's longstanding customers. They use other things. They use Oracle for some things and, and the like too, but they've collaborated very closely with uh, Salesforce, especially since Philips itself split into two companies. And And the interesting thing with Philips Health Tech is that Philips Health Tech started out originally as kind of devices and software and have transformed to a platform company now. And they're selling multiple services, plat still, you know, hardware, software, but mo primarily it's platform-based. Uh, it's expanding the service offerings have expanded greatly. And they're building that out in conjunction with Salesforce. Where Salesforce has a problem, though, and this, I, you know, it kind of goes to the, where they, uh, to me, one of their biggest issues at, in all of these things and why it's not going to be that easy to present lots of these kind of examples uh, is they are, they're arguably one of the great platform thinking companies that I've ever seen. They made it easy to be part of the company with the app exchange. Originally the APIs were open. It was very easy to get into the marketplace with Salesforce. And when, you know, Layla Saker created it, she's now back on it. Um, the thing is that the problem is, where they fall down is when it comes to the other part that makes a company successful and scalable to the levels that Salesforce wants to go and partner well, which is ecosystems. They're not ecosystem thinkers. They have a natural organic ecosystem that is unlike anything I've ever seen, but they don't know how to take advantage of it at all. And that, that's why you see almost every time they deal with a partner, they end up relegated to the app exchange somewhere, right? Instead of kind of strategic or to market, kind of approaches. Now they have a program in place with ISVs now that has some promise, but there's no bridge between the app exchange and getting to that program, number one. And typically when they do a strategic, uh, uh, have a strategic relationship with a company, it's just basically stick them on the price list and forget them, right? Okay. And, and that's it. And there's only eight of those. So that makes it difficult to create the Philips Health relationships to carry them and extend them to much longer, even though they've been successful up to a point. But it's hard for them as a company to get past that point until they actually do make it platforms and ecosystems combined. And in fact, that's that's going back to the DNA of Salesforce from early days, building the platform with the App Exchange and being able to present lots of apps on that platform to to have partners extend it. We have uh, another question from Twitter from Jesus Hoyos, who uh, <laughs> many of us know. And Jesus Hoyos is asking, how do you see Salesforce moving from a traditional B2B CRM stack to a combined B2B and B2C stack with so many clouds? So in other words, they're now selling to customers and to businesses, and that's the the movement, right? So how they how do they manage that transition? Transition, and is that actually happening? Part of what they've done, they've traditionally been very sale and 
Let me back up. So yes, they were very strong in the B2B sales oriented approach. However, they have made key investments that people don't realize over the past year beyond demandware. I mean, with the app, with Heroku and some other platform issues that have clearly given them um, some expertise there. They've made the investments on the marketing side with the exact target and they're reworking some of that. But what was absolutely critical was their acquisition of demandware. And that changed the game. And I know that I'm a little biased because I do look at customer experience and commerce as a complete entity, but that gives them the expertise to look from their customer's customer's point of view, gives them the data, gives them more of a connection into that business to consumer that will actually benefit the marketing cloud. And in the end, that will change the game for them to give them more expertise that they didn't have on a B2C approach versus the traditional sales automation opportunity forecasting side of it. And then when you look beyond that, that expertise that they also have with the service cloud, because when we look at the industry differences between a B2B company and a B2C company, there are similarities, but there's direct differences of how we handle those interactions with our customers, especially when you're talking about a scalability issue. So we do have to understand how to shift the dynamics into self-service. They've made um, movements there. They've made acquisitions in, uh, for example, great acquisitions in a relatively unknown company around live message. Again, bringing in expertise about how to interact with consumers. And all of this also brings into data. So in the future, as they look towards leveraging, for instance, Crocs, and where they're taking the combination of crux with commerce and their expertise in marketing, that does give them a lot of more insight to connect and show brands how to connect with their consumers. So no longer are the, the, the B2B company, especially with some of these marquee um, acquisitions that they have because they have the insight and they have the technology. Now they really need the partnerships. And again, goes back to what Paul said, the ecosystems to execute, execute more effectively in a B2C model. And I would just add, you see the same trend playing out within their services provider ecosystem. The word ecosystem, of course, means lots and lots of different things, but specifically the partners who have been helping clients get live and get value out of this solution. Um, if you look at who those partners were 10 years ago, it was very much the companies who are focused on enterprise application rollouts, Accenture and Deloitte were early partners. They had a number of boutiques, really focused on sales and service. Well, the last couple of years, something interesting has happened. You actually see agencies uh, now in the Salesforce ecosystem. So uh, Publicis Sapien is now a Salesforce partner. And so to me, when you look at how this technology really gets live and gets successful within a client account that eco the service provider ecosystem is such a big part. And that's another shift that will help them get there is it's not all on Salesforce. It is that they've been able to at least start to attract some of these services providers who are really experts in the B2C world. Sounds to me like this is the maturing of a, this is the, the natural evolution as a software company grows, evolves, becomes a large company and matures. Well, it's the natural evolution of a company that wants world domination. Yeah, I mean, it's not—it's not the natural evolution of most companies that they're adding an entire other category of existence to their, their work, <laughs> right? I mean, which is what they're doing. I mean, what Liz and Cheryl both said was on the money, so there isn't a whole lot to add on that. The other thing that I—the only thing I will—is that when we were at the analyst summit, as you all remember, they were—they um, were making continuous sort of, uh, let's say, slightly 
louder than a whisper references to B2C on a fairly regular basis, even though they never sat and spent the time to discuss or verify it. They, they, it they're just all in right now on that. And, and the key is, to, uh, to Cheryl's point, was demand where. And also the other aspect, they're completely revamping all their thinking around customer journeys too, which are, you know, the B2C customer journey is a whole other universe. And, Which they need. Right. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Cheryl. But the other thing we haven't discussed, speaking of acquisitions and where they've done, 11, and this has nothing to do with B2B or B2C, it's the platform again, but 11 acquisitions in artificial intelligence and machine learning. And we're, you know, what are they going to do with that? And the reason why I'm bringing it, I mean, we know what they're going to do. I'm just saying, let's, let's discuss where they're embedding that into their business applications. But the other thing we have to point out, and one of the things I said earlier, it is about the data. So one of the criteria that they do have to work with over the next five years is getting their customers on board with opening up that data stream for educating Einstein for improvements. But if we do talk about digital transformation and where our companies are shifting in the future, a lot of it has to do with leveraging the data. And so I, I'm throwing that out to the team is how are we going to get beyond this so that Salesforce can also use some of the key assets that they have today for their customers? Well, I mean, you know, uh, you'll have to, well, we'll have to get Microsoft to open the uh, LinkedIn API. So, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, the thing is that um, I think a lot of it does go to both not just use of data, but to what you were saying more about use of data and the AI use of data, the combination, really. They're taking a very explicit tack when it comes to AI, which is Einstein's part of the platform, where Oracle, for example, is absolutely adamant that it's not part of a platform. It's part of, it's, it's, it's effectively added into applications. That's literally the way Melissa Boxer and company uh, look at it there. You know, that to me, the single most important thing that came out of Dreamware was putting Einstein in the platform because that gives them the opportunity to effectively shape and formulate its use in anything they're doing. And you saw all the use cases they had in that gigantic wheel of which they probably had three of them. But you know, the reality is that that the initial group are going to be pretty much on combination of, um, from what I understand anyway, combination of, let's call it engagement intelligence and uh, the equivalent of telling a story one way or the other, narrative, things like that, right? I, I don't exactly know. They phrase it differently, but that's kind of the two concepts, meaning take the insights and then actually do something with it. But that's where they're seeing sort of phase one of Einstein across multiple uh, clouds. I know marketing cloud sees it that way explicitly. because. Well, well, there, it seems, it seems to me that they're, they're still figuring this out. As Cheryl said, 11 acquisitions in AI really tells a big part of this story, which is their intention and the importance that they place of, uh, of AI in their future and using AI, uh, distributing AI and AI benefits to their customers across all different parts of their platform. But there's, this is, this is very early days as far as that goes. Yeah, I mean, you know, but keep in mind, AI itself has been around a long time. It's just, it's starting to, uh, 
you know, become something that's being seen as necessary as things scale. And Salesforce really has no option but to get involved in it, really. I mean, aside from their direct competitors, the big guys, big four and a half, I had Adobe's a half, right? Uh, Right, the big four and a half is you have potential death by a thousand cuts there, too. I mean, this little companies like Kajito and Agent AI and I keep going, you know, Radius, all these other companies who are doing pretty substantially advanced kinds of AI work that have real business results that they can point to. And there's, there's hundreds of companies like that right now. I mean, I'm not saying they're all equally good, but, you know, I can, I can probably sit down and list 20 off the top of my head that are, uh, that are you know, good. And Salesforce has no option but to either compete with them or to bring them into their orbit because and and Einstein, in effect, Einstein has to be right. Uh, you know, even, and then look at it B two C market. What's the big deal now? You know, you're talking about voice interfaces like Alexa and so on and so forth. You're talking about all that kind of stuff. Well, you guess what? Amazon put a thousand people on it, a thousand people on on the Echo and Alexa and that whole idea of new interfaces for the use of advanced artificial intelligence and and uh, you know, and then you have robotic automation. I mean, Salesforce has no option but to go all in. Yes, it's early stage, but they have to move really fast. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think I would just add to that, Paul, that you already brought up Alexa. I mean, to me, the new breed of competitors that they're fighting with in this territory, it is it is the players that have been historically considered infrastructure oriented That's in right. the cloud. So AWS, uh, Google, Microsoft outside of the Dynamics apps, but more in the Azure stack, um, all of those companies, like, like you alluded to, you know, they've got some pretty deep investments, whether it's voice recognition, image recognition, those are a couple of the ones AWS announced at their particular customer event this year. Um, um, and exactly, I see that Salesforce not only has to keep pace with customer expectations based on what goes on in the apps world, but uh, these cloud platform providers as well who keep moving up the stack uh, with their own ecosystems, marketplaces, uh, developer tools, et cetera, et cetera. They're not exactly commodity infrastructure plays anymore nowadays. Yeah. Um, and, and the other point I would go back to is what, what you said right up front, which is this is another place where Salesforce really needs to figure out its broader ecosystem strategy because no one company is going to own AI. I mean, you, you've got yeah. Watson, you're going to have more industry-specific use cases like Watson in healthcare. Um, every service provider I know under the sun has its own AI play. Uh, you've got IPsoft and some of the investments they've made. So to me, that's another place where Salesforce really can't try to be all things to all people and has to figure out what exactly does Einstein do? Where does it hit some of these partners? How does it work together with the other companies? Absolutely. And it goes back to the business case. So that's why I raised it out is putting it in the platform is great putting it in the application or empowering those use cases is essential, which is what Salesforce has done. But Liz raises a great point about the infrastructure companies are coming up fast. And when we look at those rise of what I call invisible interfaces, now all of a sudden, again, these traditional business applications have the ability to be relegated into the unknown. So they become very behind the scenes. Well, what are we going to do to make sure that they're powering those invisible user experiences and staying relevant to their customers? And that's another thing that they have to transition. Think about how Siebel didn't remain relevant because they were relegated to a system of record. Same thing's going to happen as we start shifting finally maybe to speech. We've all been there. We've been taught. This isn't new. 
We've been talking about speech for 20 years. Nuance tried to do it for years overlaying business applications. But now we've got, as you said, Paul, a thousand people using new technologies and then putting intelligence of it. It is going to change the way we interact with applications. And one of the one of the uh, extraordinary things about Salesforce, it seems to me, is the way they are able to be agile and to change and adapt over time and to innovate and stay focused. I mean, think about some of their larger competitors who have lost their way and have had trouble innovating and bringing products in a focused, reasonable time frame to market. I mean, Salesforce has done an incredible job being able to do that. Yeah, but I, I don't underestimate their competitors either. I, you know, there's a, there, that's one thing I, that's sort of, to me, a lot of that is urban myth. I mean, look, one of the most innovative companies I've ever seen is SAP. They just don't know what to say about it once they do it, right? I mean, that they just can't get it out the door, right? But they're-, but, they're but wait, but, but Paul, I don't mean to interrupt, but that's what, but that, you know, but isn't that, if we talk about innovation, innovation that doesn't get out the door, is that innovation? Is that well, innovation? Well, no, it gets. That's metaphorical, right? I mean, they're just bad marketers is what I'm really saying, right? Uh, you know, but, um, you know, the thing is with Salesforce, the, the problem with this, the speed of change is accelerating now. And, you know, even though AI, we said earlier, AI has been around a long time. It's just the last, what, eight months or a year that we're really talking it up like massively everywhere. And it's not saying that people haven't been concerned, but it's becoming a matter of popular lore now, right? You know, that AI is something that has to happen. What Cheryl was talking about with the transformation of user interfaces. Look, I used the protocol, literally, it was called HAL 2000 in 2000, right? Which was a voice interface using, uh, what was it called? X10, right? Uh, for the house. It existed. And it wasn't bad, you know, not good either, but it wasn't bad. But this stuff's been around. But now what's happening is, Becoming popularized, it's becoming part of culture. It's becoming part of how people do what they do. It's not a coincidence that uh, when when the Echo first came out, there was you know it was a, it was kind of like it was an amazing device, but it didn't do anything really. I had it, and I was me and Brent Leary were talking about it, in fact, and saying, "Well, this is amazing, but it doesn't do anything right now. But someday, I mean, you knew it right away. Someday, this is going to be something." And then now look at it, 5 million of them sold over Christmas, right? 5 million. You're talking about something that's, not, that's actually weirdly as sexy and hot and exciting as it is, is becoming commoditized already, right? I mean, it's like, and that's why there's a thousand people turning it into natural language. But this is what Salesforce has to keep up with. Even because guess what? What else have we been talking about for uh, 15 years? The idea of the consumerization of IT. Well, that's just a matter of how we think inside work, right? And that's what we're really talking about. It's not, we're talking about consumer IT. We're talking about we want it in work because that's what we think about. And the phone was the, smartphone was the first thing like that. Now we're starting to talk about all these things. Salesforce has to stay up with all of that. And one of the reasons for that is because they are, and this is of their own doing, they're the most, in terms of, uh, let's call it, following, they're the most uh, Apple-like company in all of enterprise technology, in all of, in all of business technology. They have fanboys and girls. What, what technology company and business has fanboys? Fan no, there, is, there, is, there is no doubt about that. 
And uh, yeah, but, but that means that means they have to actually realize what those those are the customers who buy them. That's the one difference. These are the ones who make these multi-million dollar decisions. That said, they have. They, no, go ahead. What are you going to say? You they they have act. Them? They have found a way to activate those fans, and yeah. that is the holy grail of marketing. Liz is shaking her head. In a- I mean, I would say exactly. I mean, something very unique about them and in terms of how they can continue to innovate at a fast pace is they are loved by business users. Yeah. They've always had the hearts and wallets of business users. And that's something most of these four and a half, maybe not so much the half, but the other four large ISVs, they've struggled with that. I mean, they've always been perceived as much more IT centric versus business. And so to me, when you look at exactly what Cheryl said earlier, I mean, it's going to be about the business case, who's going to win in these battles. And if your innovation is coming more from the ideas that you're getting from really the business directly, the horse's mouth, uh, you do you do have some advantages there. And I think today they still have a, a leg up on some of the competition because of that. And point, wait a second, I'm going to go back to the other thing that really did push them into the winning case. I still go back to the platform and what they did to enable the long tail development of applications. Because if they stayed at that core vanilla, here's your sales, here's your service, they never would have been where they are today. Because the majority of applications that are used in the industry today across multiple different verticals are those one-off applications that Salesforce can't create. And those are what makes things sticky. And so I keep going back to, it's great that they are focusing on the platform because they're enabling their customers to create sticky applications that stay. But they also need guidance. And so that, that's where Ignite comes into play. Okay. And, and, and to your point on the platform, they, the other thing with them, and I'm going to go all the way back to the idea of the, their vision, they've never, ever, ever taken their eyes off the fact that they wanted to be a platform. And not an applications company. And very customer centric as well. We are we are basically out of time, but I think we should do one last quick round robin of each of you offer your your thoughts, comments, advice for buyers, advice for Salesforce. Any any last closing thought? Who who would like to go first? Okay, I'll take it. so, okay, so it's what I said earlier. Salesforce, you're at the point now where you have to think in combination with platform about ecosystems. And that means harnessing the organic ecosystem you actually have, right? And then doing something in a go-to-market strategic sense with them and making that whole ecosystem, that partner technology ecosystem work. That is, to me, as a strategic goal, as a as an organizational in, uh uh, changing the way your structure works, everything about you, that's what you got to do. So I'll go. My advice uh, is more for buyers. I work a lot with buyers who are in it with Salesforce. Um, Cheryl mentioned earlier the idea of lock-in, which very much is happening. So my advice is um, don't go too fast. You know, we, we have a lot of clients out there today who believe speed is everything. They believe business agility is the holy grail. They believe, uh, fast, better than perfect. There's all sorts of flavors of this. But uh, sometimes this can actually be a downside because Salesforce that's executed in every single division, all with different strategies with no central thread, uh, usually ends up a mess. It ends up expensive. You end up stuck. 
Um, and in the long run, you're not going to have a lot of agility when you're moving that way. So we're trying to encourage our clients that, yes, it's great that you can go a lot faster. You can do releases much more quickly. That doesn't mean that you should just do it ad hoc and with no planning if you're really viewing it as a strategic platform. And especially when you're thinking about using it for that long tail of apps, uh, because it is not equally suited to every app under the sun the way some might believe. Um, and that's another place where we've seen clients get into trouble. So. Lastly, fundamentally, the applications haven't changed. It really is all about simplicity and user experience. And the one thing that can bite you is if you don't think through that workflow and that business process and what you're delivering to your end customers and the data. I keep going back to the data. You are going to be owners of some critical information that could change the game for your business decision making. And if you're basing decisions on poor data, which is what historically has happened with a lot of CRM applications, you're dead in the water. So you have to make sure, A, your user using the application, which means it's simple. B, that it's clean and they have the right data. And three, that it's complete. Right? So take a look at all the data that you're missing today, capture everything, because that knowledge is essential for leveraging it for the future. All right. Wow. We have been talking with three of the top industry analysts in the world covering Salesforce.com. You have been watching episode number 217 of CXO Talk, and I want to thank Liz Herbert from... Forrester Research, Paul Greenberg from the 56 Group, and Cheryl Kingstone from 451 Research. And everybody, thank you so much for, for taking the time. I really appreciate the three of you being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for watching CXO Talk. We have an amazing show coming up this coming Friday. So check the schedule, cxotalk.com slash episodes. And, uh, Thanks for participating, everybody. Bye-bye.